Hello, I'm Deborah Quazzo. Welcome to GSV's podcast, where we celebrate entrepreneurs and their companies that are bending the arc of human potential through scaled innovations in learning and workforce technology. Today, we welcome Marcus Vitta, CEO and co-founder of Babbel, the world's dominant digital language learning platform, based in Berlin, now with a substantial presence in the U.S. You can also see Marcus at the upcoming ASU GSV Summit in San Diego, April 8th through the 10th. Welcome, Marcus. Thank you. Hello. I'd like to start really with your sort of founder's journey. Uh, the, the language learning market, the digital language learning market is is enormous market, but a but a competitive one and a complex one. And, and Babel has certainly broken out in a in an unprecedented fashion as a uh, digital language platform. Can you take me through the journey? Uh, you know, we we have we have the famous Steve Jobs quote that uh, overnight successes actually take typically take a long time. Where did this start? What were your mis- your mistakes? How are your relationships with your co-founders created, et cetera? I'd love to love to hear the the journey. We actually bumped into language learning. Uh, by accident, all the Babel founders come out of uh, the music software industry. One of us actually wanted to learn Spanish, and we just couldn't believe that uh, the internet in the end of 2006 didn't offer any opportunity to learn a language. Um, and we, we researched that and saw that the products that are out there are ti- uh, like out of their time. They They feel like in the felt like in the 90s and uh, um, they were built without without the love and enthusiasm that we saw in music software in music software we had people who were users of their software and in every we felt in every other basement were people who who built fantastic uh, uh, software um, and product in in language learning we didn't see that and we thought this is a huge opportunity for us because we know how to build a great product, which kind of was true and kind of worked out, but uh, it was only part of the truth because we knew how to build a great product, but we had more or less no idea how you learn a language. And uh, um, we thought in the, in the good old fashion of if you have a hammer, everything seems to be a nail. We thought, yeah, this, is, this is a product question. Uh, how hard can it be? Language learning, well, has been done before. Let's just do it. Um, and we built, the, the first iteration was, was, was uh, a very nice product, technically very well crafted, that you couldn't learn language with, you know, if, even if you spent your whole life on it. Uh, so, so that didn't 100% work out for us. Uh, we went through quite a learning curve there. Um, the good piece that brought us, that, that saved us there and brought us through that uh, uh, phase was that we couldn't afford to ride a dead horse back then. Uh, we were self-funded, and uh, uh, that me- meant we uh, had a very, very short runway for, for, for errors and uh, made changes extremely quickly. Uh, looking back, um, I think if we would have uh, good funding from VCs from the start, um, we wouldn't have succeeded. That, that's fascinating. It was at that point, shortly thereafter, that the that the that free products and freemium offerings began to kind of take over the take the market by storm. Do you think had you had the funding, might you all have gone that direction, which would have obviously had a very different outcome for your business today? 
Oh, we did. We made that mistake as well. So our first product was, was yeah, and, and, and then some. Our, our first product was free. Um, we, we, uh, we wanted to, to add finance it and upsell uh, premium services on it. Um, it didn't work at all. And uh, we got to the point where, where I did a calculation that if we, if we have 20 times the revenues, uh, we could almost uh, finance the five people that we had at the time. Um, and that didn't seem realistic. Uh, it wasn't a really good case uh, for us. So, so uh, um, yeah, we've, we've tried that. And uh, probably with more money, we wouldn't, wouldn't have had to stop it because, because the reason we went into subscription in 2009, when it wasn't yet cool, uh, was just to survive. Uh, and and uh, uh, we thought it is it is the only only possibility that we have, and it has the opportunity to align us with the interests of our learners. Precisely is the summation here. You quickly learned that it really needed to be a learning company. So in the two thousand and nine relaunch, did you uh, did you add learning experts around the language market? Is that kind of the the, the pivot that you all took when you relaunched in two thousand and nine, and as you think about that pivot and the product that completely didn't work to the product that now obviously does work um, and deliver language learning, what were the what were the key changes that you all made in the in the product delivery and, and, and thinking about the product? So yes, it was it was the experts uh, that made that made the difference, um, and we we brought we brought in uh, experts in language learning and what we call didactics, um, and and they. Uh, brought in the the knowledge that was there, um, this uh, and which we were completely ignorant of. Uh, not only that, uh, what, what it is actually is, but also how deep the expertise is and how how much experience there is uh, around language learning and how modern that field is. So so uh, um, we actually completely rebuilt the product. Around uh, language, uh, around the language learning approach, I wouldn't say that we we after that weren't a tech company anymore. I think the the challenge really was to to put it in a picture to have engineers and designers and teachers in a room. Uh, right. Everybody who has built a tech product probably knows that engineers and and designers in a room is already havoc. If you add teachers, <laughs> it doesn't get any better. Uh, <laughs> But that's the actual challenge. So, so uh, the one thing that I think uh, um, we we did right at that point was uh, to bring bring these these areas of ac- expertise really together, and not to give one the clear upper hand and say, okay, uh, uh, the, the teachers or didactics experts now call the shots. Everybody else follows. That wouldn't have worked either. So it's really about this friction, and it was a lot of, of work to get get that done and a lot of dialogue because knowing how people learn languages in the classroom or with books uh, is one piece. Understanding how you can use technology for that is a completely different area. So you actually have to reinvent the whole thing with the expertise uh, of, of all three areas of people who know how, how people interact with software, how, how uh, uh, the surface needs to look like, and uh, people who know what the, what the technology is and those who understand the actual learning process. That was what, what saved us. Talk to me about the, the culture at Babel and, and um, how you and your founders and, and 
uh, partner executives have have built that culture, um, and what's what's Im- what's important to the team and and, and the dy- dynamics there, and how do you think about that as you head into a, a thousand person company, um, presumably not probably too far into the, the distant future. Um, love to hear how you how you um, think about that and how you you maintain it and and, and as you uh, grow ex, um, expand overseas as well. Culture is a is a key thing for us and. What what the guiding principle was, uh, developed in the in the first uh, in the first phase of the company where we understood that we know less than we thought we have to learn as a company and as individuals that still leads to a uh, to a culture where um, top management doesn't claim uh, to have the whole whole truth um, so we don't have a very strong uh, top top down culture. Uh, but we have a culture of trust and of encouraging learning on all levels. Um, it's rather hands off and and uh, uh, distribute with distributed authority. Uh, that's that's a key factor, and that is what keeps me alive uh, because I I couldn't take all the the necessary decisions. I couldn't uh, uh, be in the weeds with with everything. Um, we're, uh, we believe in a rather hands-off way of managing, uh, which is possible because we, we bring people on board who are really on a mission, which, which is, which is uh, um, natural, I think, in the field because we yep. build a product that makes sense and, and uh, uh, it's easy to attract people who, who do want to make an impact. That is, that is a huge source of energy. It's also a source of distraction. Uh, because because everybody is kind of pulling this into a slightly different direction, and mm-hmm. and what we do as managers here is is to try to moderate that and make the culture more and more explicit over time. What uh, I was afraid about for a time uh, uh, for a time was that we might become too corporate and have too many rules and red tape and all. That actually didn't come true. I understood <laughs> that that we actually get better in, in delegating, better at, at being explicit uh, about participation because letting people participate needs some kind of structure, not overly so, not, not in a, uh, a red tape way, but, but if you don't give people rules and process, then all the decisions just keep floating up because the last rule that everybody yes. can remember is ask your boss. Um, and <laughs> and that's, that's not what we want. Uh, so over the last couple of years, we mo- we built more and more um, participatory structure, and we try different models around encouraging uh, people to take on more responsibility and and take decisions on so, all levels. So that, that's fascinating. It, could you can you you know um, be a little more explicit on kind of some of the practices that you guys have arrived at? I think that it's fascinating. One thing that uh, um, we say we, we have here is, for instance, that all the team managers are um, fully um, responsible for their teams. So there's no there's no uh, no second guessing uh, of their decisions. So uh, uh, as a team manager, and that's also for first level managers here, um, you you would have a yearly budget, um, and nobody would would uh, test you on the question, how many people do you hire on that budget? How do you pay them? Uh, when do you hire them? And when do you let them go? Uh, of course, you get support on that and advice, but it's your decision. Um, uh, that's that's one, one very specific 
uh, a case that we mm-hmm. that we know a lot about. So we really actually distribute uh, uh, budget to the people who make make the decision and, and lead the team. Um, on the on the other end of the of the spectrum, we have uh, um, a leadership team that convenes once a quarter in a full day offsite, and that that we bring together on a regular basis, uh, so once or twice a week for for stand up meetings to to sync. And those this this leadership team doesn't only contain the the functional leads, people who lead departments or or important groups, but but we we uh, uh, extend this group to people who want to make an impact and want to grow uh, to keep the communication flowing between the leadership and and separate teams. So those would be more or less randomly picked examples of of what practices we use. We also we also encourage uh, self organization on on different levels. Uh, we're not believers in in holacracy or or similar. Uh, processes because we feel it's it's creating too, mon- too many process de- uh, dependencies, but um, we we have participatory pro- uh, processes wherever we can. That would actually explain a little bit about the relatively unorthodox approach you all took to the expansion into um, the United States, and I know that was something you did with you know great planning and um, and thoughtfulness. Uh, you really have been, you've only been in the U.S. Um, just under two years. Is that right? Or just coming up on two years? Uh, no, it's actually a bit bit longer. Okay. Again, again uh, um, Hofstetter's law applies. It took longer <laughs> than we thought. <laughs> okay. Well, I, and, and it's interesting. So you, you, um, you chose to have Julie Hansen, who is the, the CEO of your U.S. business. She was a um, a very successful um, media executive across CBS, Business Insider, Penguin, et cetera. You all operate very much in partnership with her having specific autonomy to run the, the U.S. business as almost a standalone business with, gov- you know, with a governing board and things like that. Can you, can you talk to us about that? Is that um, going to be a structure that will be unique to your expansion to the U.S.? Will it be really just a reflection of the structure you just described in, in your German business? And how has that worked? It's clearly been a wildly successful launch in, into the United States market. Love to hear about that, about, about how um, you and Julie work together, her background and her media background, and how important that is to the, to the Babel expansion of the Babel franchise. Uh, the first thing that we did right was, was to bring um, a co-founder over. So uh, Thomas Hall, who's, who's currently our CTO and is one of, one of our founders, uh, went to New York with his family. Uh, he went there with two kids and his wife, uh, returned with his wife and three kids, um, <laughs> and uh, um, had that New York experience for, uh, with a family for two years and laid the, the groundwork of the, of the business there. Um, so he's an engineer, um, and, and for him it was what, obviously quite a stretch to be in a different country and, and on, on what I'd rather call a market entry and marketing mission. Um, but, but what he had was, was the full authority to, to make any kind of decision, all the trust from, from everybody uh, um, here in Berlin and, and also on the board, um, and and he was able to hire great people and build up the team over there. Got the business uh, going, um, not not as a wild success, but but steady and and uh, uh, um, profitable. And when we got to a point where we thought uh, we're 
we have a critical mass of organization and we have a proof point that this this uh, is working uh, we we thought we need to hire a high power high powered ceo um, and the decision was really <clears throat> uh, we, we, had, we had a dis- pretty lengthy discussion around that uh, should we hire a general manager a country manager or uh, should we aim higher um, and what thomas learned in the us is that market really works differently from from uh, Europe, and steering the U.S. Uh, uh, from Europe seems a very very hard thing to do. Uh, so we need a lot of authority there to make make strong decisions, uh, and that's why we decided uh, to to hire rather CEO than than a general manager. And uh, uh, we wouldn't want a CEO who reports to a global CEO. Uh, but rather set it up in a way that we have a CEO who reports into a board like a CEO should do. We have access to a different kind of talent, and we encourage them uh, to to uh, run their business uh, as a CEO and take the necessary decisions. Uh, with Julie, we have been more lucky than than uh, we we would have hoped for. Um, that was a fantastic match, and and uh, I can't stop. Uh, uh, praising her, <laughs> not just—it's not just the the tremendous success that the business has. Also, as as a person and business leader, I'm I'm a huge fan of hers, uh, and and I'm I'm very very proud that uh, she felt she she uh, wants to uh, join the business. So, what has been um, what have been the learnings? You know, obviously, the American um, consumer of language learning is is typically different than the rest of the world. We, we tend to, uh, I, I suppose, view it as a, quote, less serious endeavor. It's more, more travel or leisure um, as opposed to as a critical job requirement to learn something other than English. And how has that affected the way you all have gone to market here in the U.S.? Well, that, that was our, our hypothesis uh, when we went there. Uh, so we were really delusional about how different the, the business culture in the U.S. is. It's not only about language learning. The whole business culture really works in a different way uh, that we were not prepared for. Um, that's, that's one part. The, the other part is that um, uh, consumers are used to a different way of communication and marketing, uh, which we also underestimated. Um, and the third part is what what you mentioned. It's not as obvious that you that you should learn more languages as it is in Europe. We had this we had this interesting example um, about our current uh, um, TV creative here in Europe. It's about an alien. Uh, the the is an alien, uh, and the the story is that when you don't speak the language uh, uh, that other people speak around you, you feel like an alien. <laughs> right. Um, when we wanted to bring that to the U.S., we learned that for quite a lot of Americans, it's the other way around. Right. If they don't speak right. the language, they are the aliens. <laughs> so, so it absolutely didn't work. Classic. Uh, and, and this is just this is just one example. Um, the key learning, really, on the meta level for us was um, how important uh, um, positioning and and messaging is for marketing success. Uh, or, or market entry success. Uh, when we when we uh, um, were 
down the road for one and a half years in, in the U.S. business, and it was kind of going okay-ish, uh, we actually went into an exercise of, of doing real market research and co-creating with, with some of our users, some, some people who are interested in language learning, some who never heard of it. It was quite an expensive and lengthy process. And I must say, I was very skeptical of uh, whether all the money was spent in a good way. But it turned out that this very exercise was the pivotal point for us and changed everything. <laughs> the ch thing that, that changed it in the U.S. was how do we, how do we talk about the product um, and how do we bring across that this actually works? Um, because it's not only the interest uh, uh, thing in, in the U.S. That, that is different, that people are less have less natural interest in, in language learning. And I think that's, by the way, improving or changing to the better yep. in the moment. Yep. Um, it's also that um, they feel more more than in, in quite, quite some other countries that it is very hard. Uh, they might have tried it before and it, uh, and it was proven to them that it was hard. Um, and and it's, very, it's a key point for us to show that they can trust the process. Uh, if they use our product, they will get better. Once that came across, that, that unlocked a lot of potential. Well, Marcus, how, how do you, I mean, I think efficacy is a critical question in learning on all forms of learning, digital learning and live learning for that matter. How, in what way are you able to prove to consumers that, that, that if they use it, it will work? Is it guarantees? Is it anecdotal success? Is it, um, you know, is it actual measurement? What, what has been the secret to success? Because I also think there's a lot of skepticism around, you know, efficacy of various learn digital learning products. You're precisely right. It's a critical barrier to break through. So guarantees didn't work. Um, maybe that's, that's uh, a thing that U.S. customers are too, too, too skeptical about. About. We tried that. What we what we did was was actually serious studies with with academics. We conducted some some efficacy studies. The latest uh, with Michigan State University um, and and others before. That is that is an important point also for us to understand how good is the product actually, and and how good is the the uh, efficacy in a real test environment. It's always hard to to uh, gauge the actual learning success of our users because learning success is not that they get better at Babel. It's not that we want them to yeah. to just score higher on our exercises. Um, we want them to to succeed in the real world, and that's very very hard to measure. Uh, and and that's why why academic studies help us a lot. In, in being trustworthy in the consumer space, that only goes so far. Um, what worked most for us is examples and, and showing why this is and explaining what the difference is uh, and, and explaining that we deliver relevant language uh, to, to learners early on for them to apply. Because uh, there's, a, there's a tradition in the U.S., especially in digital products, to use outdated didactical modes like the grammar translation uh, method and, and others, where you learn languages in a way of starting to say, I am a man. This is 
a ball. The ball is on the table and so on and so forth. Uh, it takes years until you can say um, the room is not clean or would, would you bring me another beer? Of course, for people who know their way around language learning, that's completely trivial. Um, for people building digital products, not always, as it seems. And there's a lot of frustration uh, in, in, in learners from, from those experiences because they tried and they failed and they saw it doesn't, doesn't go anywhere. And explaining that, uh, explaining that and explaining that if you start with language that you can apply right away, it's a different game and it's a different thing. That, that moves the needle the most. It's not about proving or guaranteeing. It's rather about explaining. And, and the partnership you've, you've uh, announced with Cambridge English to create the, the, the Babel English test, is that, is that to really codify the efficacy? Or, or do you view that as a, uh, any sort of product extension going forward? Um, it's, it's more a product extension. Um, because because uh, uh, to really measure the efficacy, I think we need we need uh, um, higher stake tests or, or more co- uh, complicated tests. The idea behind that is twofold. One is uh, to partner up with with uh, the the market leader in in language assessment because language assessment is is really complex, uh, and and in the cooperation we we really learned how much how much knowledge and expertise is behind that field. The other part is that we felt there is a market for, for a lightweight online certificate that is not mm-hmm. in competition with the, with the high stakes, TOEFL and, and um, uh, other exams, um, but is, is more something like a micro certificate. That's the hypothesis behind that. We saw some demand, especially around English, and uh, we built this product together with with uh, Cambridge Cambridge English. Yeah, we we have the general hypothesis that our learners don't only want a language learning app; they usually also want other services like certification, but also like tutoring, travel, and other stuff. Uh, and it's very hard for them to understand where do I get it. That's why we. Why we started to to try to deliver uh, services like that. So, so on that in that vein, you all acquired Lingo Ventura in Berlin, which was a platform that provides language travel bookings. It's already really rolled out in thirty countries. So, we should expect to see you all do further acquisitions in adjacent markets. Is that that sort of the um, the message there? No, I don't think it's the message. Uh, and it, it heavily depends. <clears throat> in this case, we uh, bought a company that helps us connect better to partners. What we don't want is to to buy up businesses um, that we could buy, partner with. What we believe in this market is that we can we can be kind of a, uh, an access point for language learners to different different experiences mm-hmm. and different services like language travel. But we're probably not good at running language schools, um, especially not at destinations. Very often, these language schools are family businesses. They are very personal. As a as a larger company, it's it's totally impossible to to emulate that. And frankly, we don't want it. We don't want to eat other people's lunch. Uh, we rather want to to make the the connection uh, in a very transparent market. We've obviously seen a lot of emerging technologies um, move into the 
general learning technology market, whether it's artificial intelligence, whether it's chatbots, whether it's machine learning versions. How do you all think about that? We've seen Li Liushu um, go public on the on the New York Stock Exchange, uh, the, the, China, the Shanghai-based company, where their tagline really is China's first AI English teacher. But I know from when you all started, you felt like you had overweighted the technology and, and underweighted the learning. You corrected that. And now you have a, a, techno- a learning technology business. How, how do you see these emerging technologies, how you'll bring them into, into or not into um, the Babel uh, offering and do you see you know any of the developments as a, as a potential threat to your business we're probably a little less excited about machine learning um, than than some other of our businesses um, uh, Thomas my, my co-founder and our our CTO uh, he wrote his his thesis about machine learning uh, that was before yeah uh, before, the, before the hype right and even before before the the machine learning winter, uh, so so it's kind of yeah we've known about this before. Uh, we, we're using machine learning and uh, of course in in uh, um, a lot of areas, um, but it's a tool. It's not yeah. something that will magically uh, change our world or our product. It enhances a lot of stuff that we can do. From data extraction and and our learning about users' progress over uh, making the app more adaptive to where you are, how you learn, and so on, to uh, predicting uh, uh, which user needs what and also what addition to their learning in their journey, um, stuff like that is, of course, important. As consumers, we, we of course, uh, want that from any digital product that we're using. Uh, I recently used uh, used one of these uh, hardware navigation de- devices um, that was not not uh, um, adaptive, and I, I I understood how how terribly frustrating for yeah. modern people it is work with these with this ancient te- technology. It just doesn't adapt. How can that be? Um, so of course we need that. It's a given. Um, we're still not pretty far away from a. A world where machines um, are as good in natural language as as humans. So in math, for, for instance, there's there's uh, huge opportunities in adaptive learning because machines can actually do math pretty well. Um, they're not very good in natural language uh, compared to humans, and they're still not. Yeah. Um, so so that's quite quite some time out. And the problem uh, in throwing emerging and unfinished technologies at learners is that learners are in a vulnerable uh, vulnerable place. They don't really know what's right or wrong in that learning situation. And, and they want to trust and rely on what they're working with. And, and as we all know from our experiences with voice recognition and digital assistance and so on, sometimes they're right, very often they're not. My phone regularly calls uh, uh, the first the first uh, uh, number in my contact list uh, if I ask about the weather. That's okay, but not in a learning situation. No, that's uh, right. Although I presume on your roadmap somewhere you see Babel being deployed on the Alexa or any of the other voice platforms as they get the ability to ingest multiple dictionaries and things like that. Oh yes, uh, it might. We're less excited about the about the um, ecosystems and devices than about the move to voice in general. Yeah. Yep. Um, we wear our earpads all day. Uh, 
everything gets more into the voice area. We see that also in media, podcasts, radio uh, is is on the on the rise against uh, TV and video. Um, that will will definitely hit the whole app space, not only language learning. Uh, we're absolutely excited about that. Um, I feel it's uh, the the challenge in there um, to to adapt to that is rather a product design challenge than a tech challenge, mm-hmm. uh, because the actual deep learning stuff is done by the Googles and Facebooks and Amazons, and they do it pretty well. What we do is we use the the frameworks and do cool stuff with it, and and that's also true for all these great companies who feel they are AI companies. They usually don't build the frameworks themselves, and that's fine. Uh, they don't have to. We don't also don't build our own JavaScript libraries. Why should we? Right. Uh, right. So, so uh, the exciting stuff uh, is less the technology there and more the, the question, what does a product look like uh, uh, and, and how can it work and how can it really work? Um, and, and that's what we're, what we're looking at. And of course, that's, that's on our radar. And yep. of course, that is something we're looking at and are excited about. And, yeah. and in all this, I, I said, it's, I'm, I don't want to downgrade technology. I, I'm totally, we, we, are, <laughs> we are tech people, and, and that's, that's kind of uh, what, what runs in our veins. Uh, we just may be a little more realistic uh, and a little let, less riding the hype waves. To preempt that question, we also don't think about blockchain in language learning. <laughs> Yeah, I was. I wasn't going to ask that one. You were safe. You were safe there. I just love to hear how you think about uh, legacy and the legacy of Babel. Um, at, it, that you're obviously you have a, you still have a long way to go. So it's um, not suggesting that uh, that it, that it's in any way, shape, or form over. But love to hear how you think about that, and then um, an advice you would you would give to um, startup entrepreneur thinking about the digital digital learning market and uh, attacking it. I think what, what we want to achieve or what we want to promote and, and uh, uh, build is all centered around what we call the human factor. We feel that language is inherently human thing. It makes us connect and it makes us tick and it makes us understand the world. If there's something that we as a company want to promote and, and stand for and have as maybe a legacy, it is that all this technology is around people. It's exciting. Tools can be completely exciting and great, but language is about people. It's about people understanding each other, understanding the world and talking to each other. And everything else is just everything else. That's this appreciation that we really care about. That's the, the backdrop against which I'm happy to say there will be not an app that's better than a human teacher. So the robot, the robots are not, not going to eat all of our jobs. Uh, not if it involves uh, natural language. Um, <laughs> if, if your job involves a lot of spreadsheets, mm, I'm not too sure. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, on, the, on the advice side, usually, usually what I say to every young entrepreneur is, is don't solve a problem you don't have, because that's what I see in a lot of, a lot of mm-hmm. young companies. Uh, especially in the in the learning space, it is it is close to what I said earlier. It's really care about the people. Your problem is not machine learning. Your problem is human learning, mm-hmm. and, and take that seriously. And everything else is just just your tool. Great advice, and thank you so much, uh, Marcus. It was a delight to be able to uh, interview you today. Um, thanks so much, and congratulations on all your huge success. 
Thank you, Deborah. Thank you, and join us at the 10th Annual ASU GSV Summit in San Diego, where we focused on scaled innovation in pre-K to gray education and talent so that all people have equal access to the future. For more information, visit asugsvsummit.com.